Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, and this week we talk about Paul's defense and our hope. Paul's defense and our hope, there's a connection between the two, and we're going to see Paul's defense yet again. He's made a couple already that we've looked at in detail, and he's going to make another one here in Acts chapter 28, and we're going to see the great connection between Paul's defense and our own hope. He speaks of his hope, and we find that when we look at it and what he believed and what he proclaimed, that his hope is indeed our hope as well. And so I hope uh, I hope everything finds you well and you're ready to join us in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, we've been through a great deal of excitement with Paul. He's uh, been falsely accused and imprisoned, threats against his life, injustice against him. And a couple years later, he finally appeals to Rome in order to get out of his situation in Caesarea Maritima, back there near, uh, not too far from Jerusalem where things began. And he uh, takes a ride on a ship, on a couple different ships, and finally makes it to Rome after shipwrecked and, and much drama and several months. And so here we have Paul is now in Rome, and he's going to summon to himself the Jewish leadership of the area, and he's going to explain some things to them about his situation and about his gospel. So we'll pick up the action in Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 17. We're going to follow it through to the end of the chapter, verse 31. And uh, we're going to see in this... Uh, Again, Paul's defense, explaining himself, why he has done what he has done, and the fact that uh, why there are charges against him, why the Jews have had a problem with him. And so some of these things he seeks to explain by explaining the hope that he has, the hope of Israel. Some see in the book of Acts and taken together with the book of Luke, we know that both have a very similar opening and that Luke wrote them both, both Luke and Acts. Luke being his first volume, Acts being his second volume, and he dedicates them to a person he addresses directly called Theophilus. And it is, as Luke says, an orderly account of things in order to explain the way, that is the Christian way, and all that it's about. And some have believed from examining the content of the gospel and acts together uh, it, that Luke's purpose may have been to formulate an organized defense for Paul. In other words, having been a traveling companion of Paul, as we've seen in the book of Acts, we see many passages where he refers to uh, the group as we, we traveled, we set sail, things like that. And it shows that Luke was with Paul. Luke is mentioned in some of Paul's letters as being a frequent companion of his and in, indeed even his physician. And so some have said, okay, Luke put these things together to make a defense for Paul for when he went to Rome to explain what Paul was all about. This could explain several things. It could explain why his, uh, his testimony is given three times. It could explain why he makes all these defenses and why Luke was careful to record the, the Roman leaders, as we'll see. And it could explain a lot. It could even explain why there's an abrupt ending to it, because apparently uh, the, the book just goes on. It just ends abruptly with Paul in uh, Rome testifying to the gospel. And this is what we'll see at the end. 
And so perhaps his documentation was complete at that point. He handed it in for defense, but then some finding it useful said we ought to share this with the churches. And that's how they began to be distributed in the Holy Spirit through his people identified it as scripture. So that's an idea that's called the legal defense theory. It goes by some other names too. But Luke's assemblage of notes and eyewitness accounts and things like this do seek to explain what the faith is all about, but also to explain the actions of one Apostle Paul. So let's take a look at our scriptures today and see what we can find here. It says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Come to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, let's begin with the word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for the account of your servant, Paul. We thank you for all that you did through him and for him. And this day, Lord, we seek to understand this hope that he had. What is the hope of Israel and how is that relevant to us this very day? Lord, I pray you'll reveal these things to each and every one of us and that we will leave here better perfected for the work of your ministry and better able to give a defense, Lord. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have here Paul's defense and our hope. Well, let's take a look at Paul's defense here momentarily. It consists of several things. First of all, this fact that he had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing wrong. This he states very plainly in verse 17. You know, he called together the Jews and he said, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of fathers, yet I was delivered 
as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And so he just makes it very plain. I've done nothing wrong. He says this before the crowd in Jerusalem when he's first arrested. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So he appeals that, hey, I was serious about the law. I followed these things. I learned these things from the best Gamaliel having a great reputation among the Jews. He says this before the council. After he is uh, uh, arrested, he is brought before the council. And he says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's a bold thing to say. And as, I, as we preach through that sermon, uh, we had to consider, wow, could we say that? That's pretty bold to be able to say that I have a clear conscience. He says the same thing before Festus and even kind of challenges Festus on the issue. Paul argued in, in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any, uh, nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And so he makes a very sweeping statement and he comes back to this and, and uh, he says, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried to the Jews. I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. And so he challenges Festus with this fact. You know full well, Festus, that I've done nothing wrong. This is important in his defense. It's not just to deny the charges. I, I think it's appropriate to deny false charges against you. But you can make this claim that you have done nothing wrong, that you, uh, that, that there is no reason for charges against you, that you're blameless in this, only if you're certain that no credible charges with any kind of witnesses can be brought against you. And this is the importance of maintaining good behavior. We're told again and again in the scriptures that we should keep our conduct proper among unbelievers, that believers should conduct themselves in a way that's consistent with the gospel, honoring to God and good for the reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This way that when we, if we should be charged with a crime or some kind of wrongdoing or something else, even without witnesses or list of charges, we'll have the opportunity to say that we are without blame in these things. And they'll be unable to bring true charges and true witnesses against us. Not only had he done nothing wrong, his reputation itself was spotless. His reputation was spotless. He had the reputation to back up the claim that he has made. He's had a pattern of behavior, of following things. As we saw as he made his appeal before the council, he says, I have kept this, the, this way. I have followed this way. I've been zealous for this way of ours, the Jewish way of life. And he makes that claim. And they were in attendance on that day in chapter 23. Some people that knew Paul, because Paul, as you know, previously was a Pharisee of the Jews. He still considered himself a Pharisee of the Jews, and but he had been active in Jerusalem. He had been strong in Jerusalem. He had been persecuting the church before God called him into his service. So if there had been any charge available to him, if he had been a wrongdoer doer of any kind, it could have been brought forth that day in the council chambers where people knew him and knew his history, but no charges came. 
And so indeed, while his reputation was spotless, the Roman authorities themselves had no charges against him. And this is a claim he makes, that the Romans haven't found anything wrong with me, and it is backed up by what we see in the narrative. Here in his narrative in verse 18, he says, When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. And we look at this and we go back and we see this very plainly in chapter 26 before uh, Festus, uh, before Festus and Agrippa here in chapter 25, rather. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And it says, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? And so it's clear here, Festus was just hoping to do a to do the Jews a favor. He didn't see Paul doing anything wrong. And this is the appeal that he makes uh, before them. Look what's said by Festus and Agrippa after he testifies before them. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, and this is Festus and Agrippa, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This was the statement of Lysias the Tribune as he wrote down papers, finding out that there was a, a threat against Paul's life. He wanted to secure Paul in a better place to send him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima where Felix was. And in his letter to Felix, this is what Lysias said about it. He said, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And so we see a consistency of Roman authorities clearing Paul of wrongdoing. And in fact, it will be affirmed here in Caesar's court that we don't have it in the scripture, we have it in church history, that Paul's defense this first time before Caesar's court is successful and he's released. Now, when persecution breaks out under Nero, sometime later, he will be rearrested and he will be brought into custody and he indeed will be beheaded by Rome. But that was at another time. For this time, he is cleared. And this is just basic legal, um, basic legal action that people would take when defending a case. If an authority of the justice system has already expressed an opinion, this kind of thing can be helpful. And so it must be brought before in his defense. So in his defense, he said, the Romans haven't found anything wrong with me. They've examined me. That's going to carry much weight in a Roman court. Something else he says that's interesting is he says he had nothing against his nation. He had nothing against his nation. In other words, Paul, uh, having come then and appealed to Caesar, uh, the idea is that there might be some kind of a countersuit. This is common in our age if someone falsely accuses you of something, drags you into court, then you may file a countersuit and say, that is not right. In fact, the truth will be that this person owes me something and this person demands or should have some justice uh, against them for what they have done in accusing me or, or in this situation. Well, Paul makes it clear in verse 19, I had no charge to bring against my nation. To really understand this, we need to understand the heart of Paul. And as we see it in the book of Acts, we see at no time does he badmouth Israel. At no time does he, uh, does he forsake his original faith because he understands Jesus to be fulfilling that faith. 
And to understand his heart for his own people, we can go to the book of Romans, which had been written sometime before he had gone to Rome, a couple years before he had made this, this journey to Rome. He wrote this letter. Look what it says in Romans chapter 9 here. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. This is after he's explained the whole gospel. And now he turns to the issue of the Jews and the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so here he says very plainly his passion for his people, his desire for them to be saved. He doesn't have animosity toward them. He has, though they have made enemies of Paul, he is not conducting himself as an enemy. He has no charge to bring against them except their unbelief. Look what he says in chapter 10 as he continues this discourse concerning Israel. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul has this great, this great pattern of concern and love for his people. Look in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. Why one of the reasons he was going to Jerusalem uh, was to observe the feast of Pentecost. He decided that he wanted to be there to observe that. He was still observing Judaism. He was still following their traditions because he believed in them. And as a matter of fact, he was doing more than just going there for the feast. He was bringing relief for the, the brothers in Jerusalem. Who believed and there was a famine in that area so he's bringing relief to the churches after several years i came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings this is spoken of also in the book of romans the fact that he was bringing forth these offerings to jerusalem he had done so even on his first missionary journey as we find in acts chapter 11 the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so they had Barnabas and Saul took this, uh, this offering then to Jerusalem the first time. So Paul may, maintained a great devotion to his faith. He is seeing his faith as continued in Jesus Christ and as being un broken. And this is really the biggest point that we want to dwell on here. And the most important thing that we can learn, I think, from this chapter is that Paul's hope was in the truth of the scriptures as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he sums this up as his hope in the kingdom of God or the hope of Israel. This hope of Israel, as he says in verse 20, is something that's powerfully important to him. And it says it here. Well, let me go here to this. He says, For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And so he sees everything that he has done 
as a continuation of the promises to the nation Israel that God has given them throughout the centuries. And he's seeing these things fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He expressed what this hope is back in chapter 23 in the council. Now, he partially did this because the council meeting was breaking down and he partially did this to cause a dispute and get out. But he spoke the truth because he expresses this elsewhere also. When Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with, with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So this hope is tied to the resurrection of the dead. This is important to understand. Now it causes a meltdown during the council because one part were Sadducees and one part Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in any resurrection. They only accepted the first five books of the the Bible, the Pentateuch, as it were called, or the books of Moses. And so they didn't believe the things about resurrection. But he states this as being central to the gospel, central to Christ, the final and greatest sign, if we think about it, of Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of all things is his resurrection. He accomplished and all things that were given by God to accomplish. And he in his resurrection then shows us the fulfillment of all those things, that this work of Jesus Christ was acceptable to God and shown by raising him from the dead. Now, when they meet together, uh, as we see in Acts 28, when he gets back together with these people, so they pointed a day to talk about this because it was going to take all day. And so Paul takes all day to talk about this thing. He says this, uh, they came to him at his lodging from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he's using all the scriptures as Jesus did on the Emmaus Road, might be a good cross-reference in Luke 24 to go to, to present Jesus as the fulfillment of these things, as the true Messiah, as this promised one who would come and establish the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here is a very important phrase because this kingdom of God issue is central to understanding what we're talking about. I want to just outline, there's, there's many things to talk about concerning the kingdom of God, but I want to outline two things very clearly. And to do that, uh, we'll bring in some scriptures here. First of all is the idea of the fulfillment of a promise of an earthly king who would be a great king and a great leader and bring peace to Israel, um, peace with her neighbors, but peace also within, that this would be one who would rule righteously. And this is a promise that finds itself beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as David is given a very specific promise, an expansion as you may, may consider it of the covenant with Israel, was this what we call the Davidic covenant, where God promises David, there's going to be a descendant of yours upon the throne forever. And so this is important because there was no descendant of David on the throne at the time that Jesus came. There had not been for centuries since their exile. And so this promise has been long in waiting. It has been a thousand, over a thousand years since 
uh, David received that promise to the time that we see Jesus actually come. So there would be this earthly king that would dwell upon the throne forever, the throne of Israel. And so there's an earthly rule to this. But there's something more. There is in the Messiah, in this promised one who would come, this great king, is much, much more explained by the scriptures. And I want to explain that by going to Psalm 2. See, there's a heavenly rule that is happening here. Jesus is also a divine king. He's not just an earthly king, but he's a divine king. The kingdom of God is much more than about a local ruler on earth. It's the dominion of the creator himself being reestablished on earth. Let's take a look at this. On the screen here, you see Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is referred to by the New Testament a great deal, and it's even quoted here in the book of Acts. And here in Psalm 2, we just want to go through and want to read this. We want to see this. It asks, the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, I have that highlighted because that is the word Messiah. And this is what the kings of the earth are shown as saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying. So, you know, first we see these people on earth are resisting the Messiah. They're resisting his rule. They're saying, let's get out from under him. Or them, they say, against the Lord and against his anointed. So against the Messiah and therefore against the Lord, the human race is rebelling. There's a battle going on. But look what it says here. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, let me explain to you how I have highlighted this. The way I've highlighted this is such. Some people see in Psalm 2 an exchange take place between the father and the son, and even some commentary by the Holy Spirit. And so what I've done is I've underlined here in the squiggly yellow lines what the father seems to be saying. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And of course, that is the hill upon which Jerusalem is built, the hill upon which Jesus was crucified. So the father says, look, I've set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then there's something else here. This is from a different perspective, because this is clearly the Lord speaking. But verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So see how it's changed aspect? This is someone else speaking. And what did the Lord say to this someone else? He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this is the son speaking. The son of God is speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the king that this is talking about. This is the Messiah it's talking about. And now it turns back to the other aspect, to the Lord speaking. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the Father's commentary on the work of the Son is that this will be a complete conquering of the earth and of all the nations of the earth. And then it changed aspects yet again to bring application of these things. So we have this very brief conversation between the father and the son, but now look at the commentary on it. And if you will, this gives the commands 
that we ought to follow in response to what we've learned here in Psalm 2. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so all the way back here in Psalm 2, we see this ruling of Messiah is about a complete subduing of the earth. And the Lord, this is the Lord's king. He says, I have set my king. And so that means that he is going to rule on behalf of God. So this is the, the Lord. The hope then is a complete reestablishment of the Edenic, that is the Garden of Eden, order of things. This is the administration of God over earth through his son. And we see the kingdom as being the administration of God over earth through his sons, plural, including the church. Now, how can I say that very boldly? Well, the church is the body of Christ. When Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus shows up and intervenes in his life. He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies the church as himself. And so this is the administration of God conquering the earth through his people, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings back an order of things as it was in the garden because the design in the garden was that mankind would be in fellowship, perfect fellowship with God and be administrating, ruling over the earth. He said, you know, have dominion subdue it, rule over it, fill it. And this was the command, and this was what it meant to be the image of God, to be the likeness of God, was to be his ruling authority upon the earth. Oh, this is amazing, because when we think of the order of Eden, when we think of the way things were there, what you have is you have life without sin. You have perfect fellowship with God. You have no death, and before the tempter came along, there was no tempter. And here's what God is doing. He is reestablishing these conditions upon the earth. And, and I say reestablishing, I really mean he's making it even better because the mankind that will be present after the redemption of Jesus Christ will be an informed mankind. It will be ones who have not only seen God as creator, not only fellowshiped with him and walked in the garden, but have seen him and experienced him as redeemer, the one who gives life a second time, the one who reestablishes things upon the earth. And so this is going to be a, an improved situation for mankind because they will have a fuller knowledge of God, having been through the fall and been through redemption. And they will experience perfect peace forever. This will be God's perfect will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the hope. That all this sinning and warfare and sickness and poverty, death and toil and despair would come to an end once and for all. And mankind would exist in the relationship with God for which he was intended in the conditions in which God originally made things total perfection, everything needed by mankind, including purpose and fellowship. 
And this is important for us to challenge ourselves with these things, to look straight into the scriptures, to see what the restoration of God is all about. Because I'll challenge you with this. I do not believe a person can believe in God and believe that he will deliver less than this fulfillment of all things. A total restoration of his perfect order and his perfect blessings upon all mankind. Very, uh, very common objection to the Christian faith is this. Someone will come along and say something kind of like, well, if God is so great, why does he allow death? Why does he allow suffering? Why does he allow all these terrible things? And the Christian has many good answers to that. We go to the scriptures and we find, okay, he would only do that if there were a greater good to come of it later. In other words, something that, that would come as a result, a redemption that would happen, a glory that would be greater because of having gone through the difficulties. We understand that answer. But here's an even better answer you may want to consider. The, the Lord is not allowing those things to happen, at least from his perspective. See, we have a very narrow view of things. We live, if we're lucky, by way of great health, a hundred years upon the earth, and we see but a glimpse of the eternity that is to come. And so we have a short time on which we make our, our judgment, and we accuse God of wrongdoing because things aren't so great right now. But what we need to understand is that he is not tolerating these conditions forever. For a very short time he is. Well, he executes his plan through Jesus Christ to bring about an eternity of perfection and joy for all who believe. And so the answer is, uh, to why would he allow these things? The answer is very simply, he's not allowing these things. He's going to put an end to them. And he is actively in the process of doing so right now. Well, this is important because Paul's hope was in the scriptures as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because it's this hope that he actually gives as the reason for his imprisonment. I want to, to look at this momentarily here. He says in verse 20, uh, I've asked to see you be, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. He gives that as the very reason. This was predicted by our Lord Jesus. Think about what he says in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, as he introduces what kingdom people are like in chapter 5. And he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, what's happening to Paul and what happens to the church in the book of Acts and all throughout the ages is nothing new. This was done all through the Old Testament. See, it's just a continuation of the same thing. And this is to be expected. The book of Matthew is almost an exposition on this because look how often this idea comes up, this persecution. In chapter 10, verse 21, it says this, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This is all a result of the gospel. And you will be hated by all, it says, for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
And look in chapter 10, verse 28, just a little later in the same dialogue, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And then as he begins to speak of, of things late in his ministry, look how he says it in chapter 23. Uh, he says to the people, to the leadership of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill, you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And this is his prediction to them that they would indeed persecute his people who are announcing the kingdom. And just like they did the prophets. And this is the prediction. And here is Paul, we find in Acts chapter 28, having received the very same persecution that Jesus spoke of. And the hope of what is this hope itself of the coming kingdom of God, of God's rule upon the earth, as we saw back there in Psalm 2. Let me take us back to it because that was so important to understand that it is the hope itself of the ruling of God on earth that is being rebelled against. See, the Lord and his anointed, that is his Messiah, come. They are taking over. They are, they are going to rule the earth. And look what mankind says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. See, here on earth right now, a great battle is taking place and it's being played out as we see it in the pages of scripture, as we see it in the lives of men this very day as persecution happens around the world. The kingdom of God is here and the kingdom is being resisted. And those who threw Paul in prison, who sought for his life, who hated his teaching, are the same who refused God's rule over them and unwittingly served the enemy in trying to stop the kingdom. But they and the enemy, their leader, will fail. They can imprison Paul. They can persecute Paul. They can even take his life. But they cannot take his faith. They cannot take his reward. They cannot take his eternal destiny out of the hands of God. And they cannot take the victory that is going to come away from Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is what has been taught us by the scriptures that we have the same hope, the same hope that gave Paul hope in prison, the same hope that compelled him to continue to preach the gospel, no matter the consequences. This hope is also our hope. Do you realize I'm talking about your hope? Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hope of Israel and indeed all the nations himself. And my questions that I have to ask you this day are simply this. First of all, is, have you studied these things? Have you studied these things in the scriptures to understand what our hope truly is, to understand what it is that God is doing in the world? Why did he send Jesus? Why did he send the, the, the believers out after Jesus to proclaim the gospel and give an eternal decree that the gospel be forever preached? Why did he do so? And Answering that question will give us indeed the hope and will give us an understanding of who Paul was and why he did what he did. But another question like unto this, can, can we really even truly know our Savior? 
without understanding these things? Do we rightly understand and comprehend his love if we do not understand his ultimate goal for all those who believe? These are questions that we have to wrestle with and they are answered in the pages of scripture and they bring us this hope, this living hope that compels us to move forward. If we read the pages of scriptures, if we examine them closely, we find out about Jesus Christ that he is the ultimate and perfect Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. We find out that he is the perfect prophet having fulfilled what the prophets came to say and having himself said a great deal many more things. We find out that he is also the perfect priest, having presented himself the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. See, that's at the, at the middle of this, is the fact that Jesus offered himself in our place for the forgiveness of sins. The problem with the world was that, not that the world was just ignorant of God, but that the world was dead in their rebellion toward God and that the world needed the price paid for sins so that they could be made alive again. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Without this, you will not even see the kingdom of heaven. He is our perfect high priest who presented the perfect offering of himself, his own body, laid his life down willingly to take the wrath of God in our place. Every lie we ever told, every everything we ever stole, every deception we ever made, every fornication we committed, every wrong thing that we ever did in our lives is nailed to the cross for those who believe. This is very important to understand our hope that Jesus is also the perfect king Throughout the Bible, we're introduced to kings, and all of these kings are imperfect in some way. The best among them all being King David, who as, is described as having a heart uh, after God himself. He's a man after my own heart, God said. But even he made mistakes, even he was flawed, even he was limited in his abilities and his influence as a human being. And so we're given a perfect king, a fulfillment from this line of David, one who is not just human, but also divine. And so as we look at these two questions, have we studied these things? Can we know him without understanding these things? We have to ask ourselves, have we been negligent to prepare ourselves for the kingdom of God? Perhaps the steadfastness like Paul has has not been required in our time. Maybe we've lived a life of ease and haven't faced persecution, and maybe that's our reason for our lack of attention to these things, because it really hasn't been necessary for us to cling, as it were, for our lives to this hope. But for Paul it was, and that's what made him such a great teacher, because his very life was at stake, and he had to be sure of what he knew. So given these things and having given, been given a taste of these things in the scriptures, let me ask you this. Do you now have the hunger to understand these things? Do you have the hunger? Do you fear perhaps you might lack the zeal that Paul had because you lack his faith? In studying the book of Acts, I've, I've often had to repent of my own lack of zeal. I've had to question my own personal lack of initiative in the things of the gospel, in preaching the gospel in a place where it's relatively easy to do. 
caused me even to question my walk with the Lord, and indeed as it should, as I believe the scriptures are designed to do, as Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, probably his last letter he wrote, that the scriptures are to convict us, that is, they're to reprove us or rebuke us. They're to correct us and to train us in righteousness that we can be equipped for all the good works that the Lord has for us. These things will cause us to consider what kind of soil we are. If you remember in Mark chapter 4, I won't go into detail there, but the Lord gives an illustration of what the kingdom is like. And the kingdom is a scattering of seed, which is the word of God. That seed, the word of God, falls on various kinds of soil, which are the responses of people to the word. Three of the four soils are no good. Three of the four offered varying degrees of success at first, but then ultimately proved not to be genuine. One of the soils is good soil. That's what he calls it, good soil. And in that soil, it takes root and it gives, it gives an increase. In other words, when you plant a grain of wheat, wheat comes up that gives more than one back. It gives many back. And he says some 20, some 50, some 100, fo 100 fold is going to come back. This is the good soil. Are you the good soil? Read Mark chapter 4 and, and pray about this. The word of God gives us life and it gives us hope. And let us take in every bit that we can that we may stand in the day as Paul stood. As Paul stood there blameless and of good reputation, able to explain the hope that he had, ready to give a defense for all that he understood. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you, Lord, that the scriptures cause us again and again to examine ourselves we see this great hope in Paul. We see this hope that made him defend his, his gospel to not compromise his gospel, but to proclaim it boldly, even in the face of authorities that literally held his life in their hands. Lord, I pray that you would give us great concern over the things of God, that you would give us a great desire to fulfill the scriptures, to understand the scriptures, to obey the scriptures, Put that in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, for by our nature and by ourselves, we will not do so. So, Lord, I pray that you give your spirit to convict us of these things, to convince us of these things, to move us in these ways, that you may be known and glorified by many, that we may bear fruit hundredfold. Lord, I thank you so much for your servant Paul, and I pray this day that his example will ignite a great many more to follow in his footsteps, the footsteps of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we come to you, and in him we praise you, and in, may he be the receiver of all glory and honor for all these things. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. And I want to remind you that all the notes are available online. If you go to whitesrun.org, whitesrun.org, you can find the notes online. And these notes have cross-references hyperlinked so that you can examine the scriptures for yourself to see if these things are true. 
and it's my encouragement to you to do so. Also, if you do have questions that that doesn't answer, please contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love your feedback, positive or negative. Uh, we can handle it. And uh, we pray that you would have an encouragement to ask questions or to find out how you can learn more. Or even if you need help finding a local church uh, with, with which to connect, we can even help you in that. So thank you for attending, and I pray that you are blessed.